Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. We're here for episode 32 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we're going to switch things up a little bit. Uh, Today, we're going to discuss two cases that have bounced between federal and state court and that were recently argued before the Illinois Appellate Court. The first one is Trujillos versus International Paper Company, and we interviewed Christopher Kano, uh, who represented Kano Container, no relation. Chris made that clear at the argument, and we'll talk about that when we play the interview here shortly. And the second case is Rivera versus Allstate, another case that bopped back and forth uh, and involves questions of defamation, supplemental jurisdiction, standing our old friend, and many other uh, issues. It's a really, really interesting case. And we'll commend to you the Seventh Circuit opinion that we'll link to in the show notes. The, The Rivera case involves kind of issues of the plaintiff choosing at one point, you know what, I don't like being in federal court anymore. Send me back to state court. Send me back to state court. Something that we saw on episode two of the podcast in Thornley versus Clearview. So, let's get into uh, a brief introduction to kind of uh, set ourselves up for our discussion with Chris of uh, Trujillos versus International Paper. And the question really here, there's a couple questions: is, is a plaintiff who names a respondent in discovery, which is a procedure in Illinois that we're going to talk about? a barred from naming that respondent as a party defendant when the statute of limitations runs while the case in federal is in federal court before it is remanded back in state court. I know that's a lot, but we'll, we'll sort it out in the interview. And then what was, what is the appropriate standard for determining whether an employee is borrowed for the purposes of exclusive remedy under the workers' compensation act that deals with international paper. We're not going to deal with that so much, but those are the two general issues that are dealt with by the second district when they decide this case. The plaintiff was allegedly injured while she was working at an international paper uh, facility that they had purchased from Kano Container. Just prior to the statute of limitations running, the plaintiff sued international paper and named Kano as a respondent in discovery. The matter was removed to federal court where the plaintiff filed a motion under Illinois procedure, well, tried to file a motion to name them as the defendant they did, but it was after the statute had run. And upon remand, Kano moved to dismiss for breach of the statute of limitations and summary judgment was granted to international paper on the borrowed employee doctrine. So with that, we'll bring in our interview with Chris Kano. We're joined now by Chris Kano, uh, a partner at Franco Moroni in Chicago to discuss Trujillos versus international paper. Uh, Chris concentrates his practice in commercial litigation, specializing in construction and insurance coverage litigation. In this case, Chris represented Kano Container, uh, not a not, not no relation, as it turns out. And he was very quick to add that at the oral argument in the case uh, in the oral argument that was recently had before the Illinois Appellate Court Second District. Uh, Chris is on vacation, and uh, we really thank him for joining us because, as you have noticed. Uh, listeners, the second district likes to rule quickly. 
and so we wanted to try to get this interview in before uh, the opinion comes out uh, and uh, really get the benefit of this very, very interesting issue. So, Chris, why don't we start with, why don't you tell us about the facts of the case, just generally, where does Kano container fit into the story? And what? And because this is a statute of limitations case, at least with regards to Kano, uh, what was the date of the accident? Well, I uh, thank you very much for having me today. Um, I, t- relative to the facts, I, I really didn't get too involved in the factual issues simply because they weren't germane to the procedural issue. But I mean, obviously, there was an accident um, at, at this international paper container uh, or international paper facility. Um, my understanding, there was some process whereby Kano Container Corporation transferred either the facility assets or what have you to international paper. So that's kind of where I came in on the procedural side of things. I mean, relative to the procedural issues, I mean, the, I think you accurately framed it. The key issue was the statute of limit, limitations. The date of accident was February 8th, uh, 2016. Um, so... Uh, they had two years to file their complaint against Kano. Um, that date expired on February 8th, 2018. Um, the plaintiff filed their complaint on February 2nd, 2018, but only added Kano as a re- respondent in discovery, as you know. Yeah, to, to situate the procedure in the state court, uh, Kano was dismissed on statute of limitations grounds and international paper was dismissed on summary judgment based upon borrowed employee doctrine, is that correct? That's correct. And, and, and the motion to dismiss was originally presented to the federal court after uh, removal, um, and it got represented to this, the state court after it was remanded back uh, by the federal court, and that's how we got to the second district. Um, the, the really interesting issue here was the respondent in discovery um, and, and how that played into the statute of limitations. Um, everybody's aware of that procedure under 735 ILCS 52-402. Uh, you have the opportunity to issue discovery to a party named as a respondent in discovery. Um, they're not really a party to the, the action and are only there to respond to the discovery. And the plaintiff has an additional six months to add them as a party defendant. So it effectively extends the statute of limitations by six months. Correct. From the date it would have been otherwise. So instead of being February 8th of 2018 is the deadline, it would now became August 8th of 2018 or something like that, assuming the 8th Correct. didn't fall on a Saturday or Sunday or a holiday. Exactly. So when when they added Kano as a respondent in discovery, it effectively um, extended the statute of limitations to August uh, August 8th. 2006 or 2018 got to get my dates correct but in the interim um, and, and where where it gets procedurally messy was the case was removed to the federal court uh, April 11th of 2018 by international paper company and so what was the basis for the so it gets filed in state court in DuPage County in Kane County in Kane County a uh, Kane County okay and so that's Geneva uh, and International Kano was located where? Uh, well, Kano, you, guys, you guys are obviously foreign, uh, meaning foreign to Illinois. International paper is. Oh, okay. Well, how about Kano? 
Kano is not. So international paper, so they mo- removed it based on diversity jurisdiction. Right. And, okay. It didn't seem and, there was a rising under jurisdiction here, so it had to be diversity. Right. Okay. Exactly. So, uh, as I said, the case gets removed April 11th. What, what's interesting, and this is kind of a side note, in the state court, there apparently were still proceedings going on even after removal uh, because the plaintiffs had filed a motion to default Kano for not responding to the discovery. And I think they also filed a discovery motion as to the other responded in discovery manpower. And so there were still these proceedings. And, and just so we can situate people, manpower was the employment agency that that whether they hired her or who she actually worked right. for was the issue with regards to international paper, which we're kind of putting to the side. But manpower was her the employment agency that placed her with international paper, who she was actually employed by is the other issue we're really not going to get into today. Sorry, Chris. I just want to make sure people know who everybody is. No worries. Exactly. And that's where uh, the parties were. Um, As I said, the case was removed in uh, April 2018, April 11th to be exact. And uh, from all appearances, uh, the plaintiff, uh, as you said earlier, Section 402 extends the statute of limitations, um, but it's not an automatic stay because or, or, or extension because in order for you to avail yourself and to be able to add the party as a party defendant after the statute of limitations, there's procedures in the statute that you have to adhere to. You have to file a motion for leave to convert uh, and, and also present evidence of probable cause for the conversion. So it's not just... It's not an automatic extension. And and it seemed as we progressed through the federal court proceeding that that was sort of the belief that uh, perhaps the plaintiffs were operating on, that there was this automatic extension of time to add Kano as a party defendant. And um, as I'm sure you're aware, the, the, the next big issue arose in July of 2018. Uh, July 24th was when the plaintiffs filed a motion to extend uh, the date. Um, it ultimately ended up getting extended to October 2nd of 2018 to add uh, Kano and Manpower as, as defendants. And the interesting for which court did they file that motion to extend? The state court or the federal court? That was in the federal court. The 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 state court proceedings sort of uh, terminated, if you will. I think it was in June. Uh, when they finally granted Kano's motion to vacate, vacate the default. Uh, and so there was nothing further to that extent. And, and interestingly enough, uh, the plaintiffs never, I mean, even though nothing should have been going on as the state case should have been stayed and, and you know, effectively discovery was stayed at that point, um, the plaintiff never moved in st- state court under 402 to convert Kano or manpower to defendants from rep- respondents in discovery. Yeah. And under the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, is there a similar to 402, or is 402 even operative in the federal courts or anything similar for respondents in discovery? Well, uh, I think the case law is pretty clear that 402 is not applicable in federal court for primarily two reasons, because it conflicts with the federal rules of Joinder 15, 19, 20, 21, and 1447. Um, and also, it, it, as originally enacted, it applied only to MedMal uh, cases, and then it was later amended to apply to all 
causes of action. So there's subsequent federal cases that say it's not a substantive rule and it's procedural. So therefore, it's not applicable, uh, you know, citing to the supremacy clause and the Erie Doctrine as bases for not applying it or uh, allowing it to act as an extension. Now, there's there's cases that seem to also imply that even though the, the courts have said that it's not applicable in the federal court, there are cases where it appears that the plaintiffs have still tried to avail themselves of the procedure um, with mixed results. And, and unfortunately, uh, fortunately, uh, it, it, there was no 402 motion filed in the federal court after the July 24th motion to extend. Right. Um, so procedurally, what happened next was, as I said, the, the motion itself, the motion to extend really addressed, it was a motion to extend and motion to compel discovery, it really just cited to 402, asked for an extension of time and addressed the discovery issues um, related to the respondents in discovery. And even the federal court, I think in granting the extension may have also been operating under that procedure too, because 402 um, also allows a subsequent uh, extension to be granted. I I believe it's up to 90 days and, and here, the court did grant the extension from August 2nd to October 2nd, so another two months. Um, but again, I don't think the court was passing on whether or not, um, you know, the plaintiffs could avail itself, avail herself of the procedure under 402. And it's an interesting, I was thinking about it after the argument. Well, what if the plaintiff had presented a 402 motion between the time that the motion to extend was granted and the time that they ultimately just filed their motion, or they actually just filed the uh, amended complaint on October 2nd. So there was no motion uh, for conversion, no presentation of probable cause evidence or anything of that nature. But as I was thinking about it afterwards, well, what, what happened, what would the federal court done in that scenario? I, and I'm not sure, but uh, I, I th- I'm thinking that they would have done similarly to what ultimately ended up happen- happening here when the amended complaint was filed. We came in and timely objected to it by filing a motion to dismiss under 12B6. And the court. In federal realized, court, right? The federal court. And I've got to be clear on that. The federal court realizing that the addition of Kano now destroyed diversity and <laughs> it had to remand the case back to state. Because so, it now had lost subject matter jurisdiction. Correct. It, it, in doing so, it, it lost subject matter jurisdiction, did, denied our motion to dismiss without prejudice, and specifically said that we could refile it in the state court and that we may have a meritorious defense based upon the statute of limitations, and, and thereby really preserving what is a state issue, the statute of limitations and and as I was saying just a moment ago, if the if the court had passed on a 402 motion, and, and I'm thinking that perhaps they may have done likewise and punted it back to the state court um, to pass on, because you know, I mean, the, the realities here are the the statute of limitations expired on February 8th, and um, the the six months for the 402. Um, the original 402 designation expired on uh, August 2nd. You know, in the interim, the case got moved to federal court where 402 is simply not applicable and it's not an automatic extension of time. So without that, the addition of Kano at October 2nd 
was clearly outside of the statute of limitations, which really was the, the one of the primary bases for our motion to dismiss that got refiled in the state court following remand. And, and at the federal court, they never tried to name Kano as a defendant, right? They never... Well, no, they named the amended complaint, didn't they? Well, they, they, they again, they granted the motion to extend, and they simply, uh, as I said, the plaintiff simply filed its uh, amended complaint on October 2nd. There was no subsequent motion under 402 um, attaching the proposed complaint because the the statutes that interpret what what the procedural requirements are and substantive requirements under 402 allow the, you can file a motion for leave to file a complaint, but it has to either attach the complaint or affidavits or or, or depositions or, or something. Here, you have to show good cause why you're now making this party a defendant. Right. Exactly, exactly. Here, there was nothing. There was a motion to extend, and we never got the complaint. Uh, or the court was never the federal court was never presented with the complaint until it was filed on October second, and then we subsequently moved uh, to dismiss it under twelve b six. So, all right, I, I am thoroughly confused now because so it's very confusing. Listen to our so, argument. So, so when the case gets removed, the only party in the case, only defendant, I should say, was International Paper. That's correct, and so. While that was going on, Manpower and Kano were bopping around in the. It's still in the Circuit Court of Kane County. Well, it, it, well, bopping around to the extent that we were trying. At least Kano was. We were trying to get the uh, default vacated, which is, and then I, I still and, and have then, no understanding of how that happened. And then by and the, so the only way that Kano was brought into the federal matter wasn't until. October 2nd, when they named you all as a defendant on that amended complaint filed in federal court? That's, well, like I said, there was a motion to extend that was filed. We appeared because there was discovery issues raised because, uh, let me backtrack, when the case, so uh, as I said, the the complaint was filed in state court. The plaintiff issued discovery to the respondents in discovery um, about a month after the complaint was filed. However, before that discovery was answered or responded to, the case gets removed. So discovery stayed. So what happened in the federal court, because the respondents in discovery are not parties, they're considered third parties, the plaintiff issued subpoenas um, for the documents to... Federal subpoenas, not state subpoenas. So tacitly... And it's not like you can ignore those. No, exactly. It, it, and tacitly, tacitly acknowledging that, you know, neither Manpower nor Kano were, you know, parties to the action in the federal court, um, because that, that was one, and, and this may be too far afield, one of the arguments was that we waived objections. Well, we're going to get to that. Yeah. 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 Tell us about that, because we want to talk yeah. about that, because that was kind of a ma- an amazing argument. I just didn't understand. And right. it, it sounded like the, the advocate's and the justice were talking past each other as to what it meant to participate in discovery. So tell us about that part of the argument. Well, it, they, they made a few waiver arguments. And one, one of the waiver arguments was by appearing at the hearing at the motion to, for the motion to extend and to compel discovery, we somehow acknowledged that we were parties and had the ability to object to ultimately being added to a defend as a defendant. Um, however, as we argued to the second district, no, we appeared simply to 
monitor the motion proceedings relating to the discovery because certainly that was at issue and they were complaining that uh, we hadn't uh, responded to the subpoena. Um, and during the hearing, the court actually asked the respondents in discovery to address the, well, I'll, 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 I keep saying, referring to us as respondents in discovery, but again, in federal court, there is no such procedure, but just for ease. Um, and, the subpoenaed. Yeah, the subpoenaed parties. So there was, you know, the, the judge asked uh, Kano and Manpower to address the discovery issues. Uh, which both parties did, and then just went ahead and uh, proceeded to grant the two-month two extension uh, for the plaintiff to file an amended complaint, adding additional parties. There was no, you know, there, there was no addressing the 402 standard either in the motion or at the hearing. There was likewise, and this was another argument which I know you both are aware of. They, after the fact, claimed that, oh no, we were added as uh, party defendants under the federal rules, uh, 19, 20, 21, 15, pick, pick one. And again, there was simply no mention of that in the motion. There was no addressing that at the hearing. The court never brought it up. And, and of course, I, the federal court, that is. And the federal court didn't uh, rely on it in its uh, minute entry granting the two-month extension. And, and our so we granted a two-month extension to file an amended complaint or to conduct discovery and then do what you will thereafter. What was the nature of that minute order that gave an October 2nd deadline? To file an amended complaint adding parties. Got it. Again, okay. There was simply something, you know, so, something we're very used to in federal court is something that's what trial that's what federal judges do. Right. But I, I, yeah. I, and again, in thinking about it afterwards, I mean, like I said, the motion was very sparse. Um, just really reciting the procedural issues, didn't address 402's requirements, but did cite the 402. So my my thinking about this afterwards was, well, you know, the, the federal court was under the belief that the plaintiff was proceeding under 402 and, and thought, to it, thought to himself that uh, perhaps they're going to file a motion under 402, at which, which point, when it became clear that the parties, or, you know, at that point, I think it, only Kano got at it, would destroy subject matter jurisdiction, the court could kick that back to the state court and let the court, the state court decide the statute of limitations issue, the 402 issue, what have you. Which makes sense. But, you know, it was interesting because the appellant, when they when they argued, uh, one of the questions from one of the panelists was whether or not you had objected to being a party in federal court. But from this timeline, it sounds like you were never a defendant until October which which was well after these things occurred. And the other thing that was interesting, the appellate was asked if there's any case law for this thing that you mentioned showing up to a deposition and and uh, objecting and whether yeah, that waived jurisdiction. Up to the deposition, right? Apparently, right? Yeah. Well, so it, and <laughs> this is an interesting part of the timeline. So when the the court um, was presented with our motion to dismiss after the uh, you know the amended complaint was filed. The court set a briefing schedule and oral argument schedule, setting it out until April of 2019 with a May a discovery cutoff. So the parties discussed it and there was communications between plaintiff. And, and as I said, I just came in on the appeal, but uh, my partners who represented Kano in the underlying case uh, about our participation 
at depositions because obviously plaintiff was going to object to retaking depositions. And under the, you know, the, the month timeline, it was agreed that in the interest of judicial efficiency that, uh, you know, we would be allowed to participate at depositions and this would not effectuate a waiver of the statute of limitations defense or any issues relating to 402. So again, I just don't think the record really supported them. And, and as you alluded to, Dan, they were directly asked whether there was any case law and, and there's just nothing. And I think yeah. it was last ditch it, attempt. It's very typical in a 402 situation where you don't have all this mess, where you as a respondent attend the depositions of parties because you need to know what's going on in order to be able to answer discovery, see if you need to supplement prepare your own witness for their deposition. Cause just because you're the respondent doesn't mean you're going first right. um, in terms of the order of discovery. So in state court proceedings, that oftentimes happens. Um, so you get back, the, the court remands the case once diversity is destroyed by the addition of Kano. And you guys came in on a, I take it a two, six, 19, a five motion to dismiss for a breach of the statute of limitations. Correct. That's exactly right. And then the court and, granted and, then it. You, and the court granted that motion along with the summary judgment motion uh, filed by International Paper um, on the borrowed employee business. Yes. And did, was there a 304A finding with you? You guys, I just had to wait because you guys went up together. Is that yeah. what, that, there, was a, there was a delay on that? Yeah, I think they filed a motion to reconsider both. And of course it was denied. And then there was 304A language and, and that's how the both appeals got up together. Oh, they weren't they weren't together. Did they get consolidated, or did they go up together? I, I think they came up together, if memory serves. I don't remember consolidation. Uh, so, so let me change the facts uh, because it seems to me that there is a way that this could have been done, and that four hundred two would apply because it does govern the statute of limitations, which is substantive for Erie purposes. Um, let's suppose that Kano was diverse. It's not, but let's suppose it was diverse. What then, I mean, if the plaintiff had, um, sought to convert, I mean, why isn't, um, I, I mean, the plaintiff conceded almost out of the box that 402 is procedural. Right. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, game over. Well, I would have insisted that it's substantive. Because with yeah. regards to statute of limitations, it seems that it is. Where, where am I wrong? Well, I, I, again, as you said, there was a, an immediate concession at that point. So yeah, I agree. Uh, I, good, good bully for you. <laughs> right, right. So, the first no, first line of questioning. I mean, yeah, yeah the first no. question out of the box is, "Isn't this procedural?" Yes, yeah. <laughs> that would not have been my answer. <laughs> well, I. I, I think if you did change that facts, as you suggest, and Kano is diverse, then, you know, it would be a, an entirely different scenario. I agree. And, um, but I still, you know, it, it kind of bleeds into what I was saying, you know, my thinking about this scenario afterwards, because I, you know, and I kind of anticipated this type of question um, from one of the justices and I actually drew it from Justice Brennan was, well, what's a plaintiff supposed to do? You know, they... Right. They move under 402 and the case gets removed, you know, before they can really avail themselves of the, the, the procedures under 402. And, you know, what my knee jerk reaction was, 
just name everybody defendants and you're not in this scenario and conduct some discovery. And if, if I mean, this happens all the time. Um, you know, parties get dismissed at some point after a little bit of discovery, if, you know, it indicates that they're not at fault or whatever the issue is. Um, and, and really, I mean, you know, I, I've been practicing for over 25 years and this is probably the second or possibly third case that I've ever had that involved respondents in discovery. I had a construction case where I was a respondent in discovery. They asked for discovery. It, it didn't get procedurally complicated like this because there was no removal. Asked for discovery. I thought the discovery showed that we shouldn't have been involved and they named us anyway. And we got out on summary judgment so after having to attend countless depositions, even though, uh, you know, in my view, the, the documents and ultimately that's what prevailed upon the court to grant summary judgment. But, uh, you know, either f file a complaint against the defendant at the outset, and especially I, I think you can anticipate these issues or at least the risk of it by knowing, you know, who, who the parties are. I mean, certainly I don't think it was any shock that international paper had the ability to remove. Of course, that's, you know, their decision. Um, but as I told Justice Brennan, this isn't forum shopping on the part of Kano as a respondent in discovery. We can't right. remove the case. We have no ability to. We, yeah, we had no control over the forum. Um, but, you know, I think once in federal court, moving under the belief that you have this six month extension of time, at least I think you have to avail yourselves of the, of the requirements set forth in the statute. And it, as I said, I think the court may have ultimately reached the same uh, result in terms of, OK, we adding Kano to this case as a non-diverse uh, defendant destroys our jurisdiction, remands it back. In, in the case of a diverse defendant, perhaps uh, uh, on 402, I, I know, I know, Pat, you're, you're suggesting in that case it might be substantive. I don't know. I mean, that's that's why I just kept thinking about that. And, and then when the first question came the way that it did and they gave the answer they gave, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Well, I was, I, I was I surprised as well. I, I, th I think it was a, a, a tough argument to make that it'd be substantive because the cases seem to be in line that it's a procedural uh, okay and, and not substantive. So I, but as I, I said, mean, if I, that's if that's what the law says, then right. they were never going to they're never going to win. They have no chance of winning this argument. That right. if well, you're in a situation similar to this and your case gets removed, you name that party immediately. And you get and you get you either stay in federal court if they're diverse or you get or you get a, an immediate remand back to state court. And then you and then you deal with it from there and hope you don't have a rule 11 or rule 137 problem. I mean, that's really that's really where you're at. Exactly. And, and at least that don't way, play this game if you're the yeah, player in the future. But, but it, it, you know, if you are going to go down that path, then you have to at least continue down that path. And, and right here, was, they didn't do that. They didn't do anything. I mean, they. And, you know, on the federal joinder issues that were raised, we, we said, you know, I addressed it with the justices. I said there's there was simply no mention of that, no addressing the standards because you still have to address those standards. You just can't just come in and say, I mean, uh, I'm adding you as a defendant and, and there's no basis either in a pleading or, or a motion as to why you can do that under 19, 20, 21 or 1447. There was just simply nothing. It was just matter of factly uh, the, the the belief that the they had this automatic extension to august 
then when the federal court ruled on the motion to extend, extending it another two months, that all that you had to do was file an amended complaint. I mean, it, it may have been a procedurally different case had the plaintiff filed something else between the motion to extend and the the uh, actual amended complaint on October 2nd. No, I, I think you're right. I, I, that's why I said I'm going to change the facts because the, they, they, the way that they seem that they have went about it was not the, a way that might have worked if they weren't convinced they could in good faith have named Kano uh, and, and our manpower as defendants. Um, they, they needed to have done something else and they didn't do, they didn't cloak themselves in either the state rules or the federal rules, it seems. To, you you got you got to grab you got to grab onto one set of rules and then grab onto either and right. as a consequence that really that really caused a problem it seems. Yes, exactly. I mean, there was just simply no basis whatsoever for the October second. I mean, aside from the extension that was granted, and and you know, as to the waiver issue, you know, we said, look, we we didn't waive any objection. We timely objected because we up to that point we weren't a party. We the only thing we could possibly object to at that. Um, July hearing was the discovery issues or the actual extension. I, th there wasn't any probable cause or anything else under 402 mentioned. It was simply that uh, 402 was being invoked and uh, there was these discovery issues and we need more time. Right, And that, that was the extent of it. Wow. That is quite the quite the procedural morass. We've had several on this. the show, Chris, and this, but this one might take the cake. It uh, was... The it was definitely when I first got involved with the appeal. I I remember reading the pleadings that got us to the the appellate court and scratching my head. I mean, one thing that I couldn't wrap my mind around was what was going on in the state court after removal and why that was happening. I, that's why I said bopping around because it didn't make any yeah. sense. What could possibly be going on? Well, that's that, that you know I, I I kind of fixated on that for a while and then I finally removed it from my head, thinking to myself. This has no relevance whatsoever to the issue, so just put it out of your head. I mean, one of the things that I was going to say to the court had they gotten there uh, was, well, you know, clearly there was more going on in the state court after removal, so perhaps plaintiff could have filed a motion in the state court at that point. Right, right, uh, right. And maybe, they had, maybe they'd have a separate cause of action, maybe file a separate complaint there, I, keep, keep uh, international paper in federal court, go against manpower and Kano in state court, you know, and never, and just leave them be. Right, right. You never know. I mean, like I said, I, I think that is, as I recall that the state court terminated the case sometime in late June and, and really the, the fun began in the federal court at the end of July with the filing of the motion to extend. So there was really a, a month gap. So, yeah. Wow. Well, but Chris. There, there was never a 402 motion filed in either state or federal court. So, hmm. Wow. Well, Chris, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Um, we won't take any more of it. Um, and uh, good luck uh, with, uh, with the appeal before the second district. Well, thank you very much, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Chris. This was great. We're back for our segment two in our second case, Rivera versus all state insurance companies. And in this case, as Pat mentioned, and this will get into a lot of questions about a supplemental jurisdiction and, and standing and all kinds of uh, good stuff. And this, this case, as well as the first case, uh, went between federal and state courts. 
In this case, the question was, can a person be defamed if they are not identified by the defendant? Can a finding of no injury for standing purposes by a federal court be used as collateral estoppel in dismissing state law claims? This case was argued uh, shortly after the Spokio decision, and so we've talked about cases of standing in these uh, statutory injury types of cases. In this case, involved the Fair Credit Reporting Act at the federal level. Those are among the questions that will be addressed by the Illinois Appellate Court, 1st District, and Rivera versus Allstate. And this is the next chapter in a 12-year saga. This case has been going on since 2009 at this point. The oral argument is in the comments uh, and will be posted uh, along with the other materials like we always do after the podcast is recorded and, and loaded. The Seventh Circuit found no injury in fact, given the plaintiff standing to support subject matter jurisdiction for the Fair Credit Reporting Act claims. And that, thus there was no hook on which they could exercise supplemental jurisdiction over the state law claims of defamation. In this case, the plaintiffs were traders on the equities desk for Allstate, and they were alleged to have manipulated trades to increase their bonuses. After an investigation, they were terminated, and a 10K statement disclosed the alleged wrongdoing, but did not identify them. Uh, Allstate uh, thought that this was such an egregious thing that they over- uh, contributed to the pension funds due to ERISA and the tune of $91 million as a result of the alleged manipulation of trades. Uh, everybody conceded that, that that amount that was contributed to the pension plan was much greater than the actual potential losses from trades, but just to be safe, all state contributed that amount. The plaintiff contended because of the manner they were fired, they could be identified. They were fired and they had a call up to their friends to get their materials, um, and a federal jury uh, found for plaintiffs and bought uh, the plaintiff's arguments. They awarded them $27 million. Uh, the state court dismissed the plaintiff's suit, and an appeal followed. Pat, tell us about this interesting oral argument that has a lot to do with procedure as well as the substance of the matter. Sure, Dan. And so I want to sit. I want to start by, uh, Dan mentioned some concepts of subject matter jurisdiction and supplemental jurisdiction. And it's important to understand how they interact. And if you are a procedure buff, I can't commend the, the Seventh Circuit opinion highly enough. It's very, very helpful in understanding how these things interact. So I'll try to boil it down. So the plaintiffs filed federal law claims under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And then they had state law claims arising out of the same operative, the same uh, oper uh, common nucleus of operative facts that attached to them, and thus the, the federal court had supplemental jurisdiction, or so they claimed, over those claims. What happened was that they go to trial, and at trial, as Dan said, they won $27 million. It goes up on appeal to the Seventh Circuit. And the Seventh Circuit issues an opinion and says, yeah, we think they got that wrong. And oh, by the way, there's a question about standing. And on petition for rehearing, much like happened in the Thornley case, where they were the plaintiff was contesting jurisdiction from the outset, in this case, they said, you know what? We don't want to be in federal court at all. There's no standing. Dismiss this case. Vacate the judgment. Send, you're going to do that anyway. You've already done that. Send us back. There never was any jurisdiction in the first instance. And you might ask, 
Well, if the federal law claims aren't there, are, are, are either don't have merit, they, the Seventh Circuit first held there was no merit to those claims. And then they questioned whether there was injury. And, the, and so then they said, well, that raises a jurisdictional question. Because Spokio, as Dan said, came down a couple weeks after the case was tried. So this wasn't really an issue. This is back in 2016. So when the appellate court, the Seventh Circuit said, you know what, there isn't standing under the, the Fair Credit Reporting Act claims, then because there's no standing, you never should have been federal court in the first instance. And therefore, we can't exercise supplemental jurisdiction. Now, let me contrast that for a moment because the court talks about this in the opinion. If, however, hmm. they had said simply you don't have liability under FINRA, or, or, sorry, under, under, under FICRA, under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, st- and then dismissed those claims, the, a court, the federal court still could have uh, decided to exercise uh, subject matter jurisdiction or supplemental jurisdiction and held on to the state law claims because at least there was jurisdiction for the federal law claims. But because there was no subject matter jurisdiction for the federal law claims, the whole case went went to state court. So there it goes. Um, It's a bit complicated, but I think it's important to understand that. So in finding that there was, the reason why they found there was no standing was because they said you had no injury in fact. And the injury was you couldn't show that there were people that didn't hire you because of this alleged disclosure of your identities, you four people that were basically perp walked out of the building and everybody knew when they read the 10 K statement and they knew from that you'd been perp walked and they knew that it was in the, in the public, in this small community of traders, that you were the ones that did this alleged violation that was described in the 10 K. And so they were able to be, they were able to be identified. The problem was, and the reason why there wasn't standing was because they couldn't show that they actually weren't able to get jobs. They couldn't identify a single employer. And Justice Pierce at the oral argument recently was like, you've had, you guys litigated this case for years and you still can't identify a single employer, the four of you that wouldn't hire you because of this circumstance. And so what they argued when the case got to the state court was they were collaterally stopped from arguing that they had an injury. Because injury is necessary to show a defamation per quad. So there's two different kinds of defamation. There's defamation per se. So if I say, Dan, Dan's a murderer. I say that. Well, accusing Dan of an infamous crime is itself a injury by itself. He doesn't have to show that anyone actually believed it or he didn't get work because of it or something. Saying Dan's a thief or something. Sorry. Unless I'm a political candidate, then you can all bets are off. Well, that's a different thing because the, the First right. Amendment actually right. applies right. To, pol- to politicians. Right. But since Dan is not running for office, I can I cannot defame him and say Dan's Dan's a murderer, Dan's a thief, Dan's a, something like this. But however, if I say Dan is, uh, but if that's that's defamation per se, don't have to show actual, don't have to show special damages. But if I allege if I allege defamation per quad, then I have to show special damages. And per quad is the kind of the kind of allegation or the kind of thing about Dan that people wouldn't necessarily think bad of Dan. But I have to show that his reputation was damaged in such a way that he suffered some pecuniary damage. And the problem is on defamation per quad is they can't 
they didn't have injury in fact to support the Fair Credit Reporting Act claims. So therefore, they didn't have damages sufficient to support a defamation claim. Out you go on defamation per quad. So then we come to defamation per se. Well, they didn't. It's If I had said, I know a guy who murders people and he, and, and, uh, he, he, works at, uh, he works at the Howard and Howard firm. Well, I, okay, so the men who were lawyers at the Howard and Howard firm, that doesn't narrow it down very far. There's a lot of men that work as lawyers at the Howard and Howard firm. But if I say, the guy I do the podcast with, he's a murderer. Dan's, you know, axe murdering all over the place. Um, then it's pretty easy to identify who that is because there's just two of us. So they said, well, you could identify who it was, and therefore it was um, defamation per se, and you could identify them. And they cited this Bryson case that actually doesn't say that, right. um, as, it, as it turns out. Um, and the justices reminded the, the uh, plaintiff's counsel of at least once or twice, Bryson actually is not – your friend, right? You cited it, but the, the case doesn't support you. <laughs> the Bri- yeah, in Bryson, they actually identified Bryson, as it right. turns out. They actually, the name is in the, is in the time. It's one of the funny things about defamation is that no one knew Rivera and these other people were ever alleged to have done anything uh, until they filed a lawsuit where they said, hey, you said I did something. Well, no one knew it to begin with, but they sure do now, um, <laughs> or alleged to have done something. Because... I, I, uh, Dan and I talked off air, you know, obviously Allstate took this very seriously. They put in a bunch of money four times, you know, they put out a bunch of money in here to fill in the gap that they, that their expert told them was the maximum of what might've been uh, done by this manipulating of the trades. But it, they, it was done out of an abundance of caution. So the case gets dismissed for not have not identifying these people under defamation per se and not and collateral estoppel under defamation per quad because they couldn't show any special damage it's it a go ahead yeah i was just going to say this was was uh, it was dismissed under 2615 it, it, it was not extensively yeah right and 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 it's 615 because you can take judicial notice of the opinion of the 7th circuit the interesting question though is is that and this was this was talked about is is the entire Seventh Circuit opinion just dicta because right. they held they had no jurisdiction and therefore is it really just dicta? And I I don't think that's going very far I don't because either. it was essential to their opinion that they have was the opinion they spent twenty nine pages on it telling you um, and it's a page turner it really is it, it's a it's as as Seventh Circuit as as appellate court opinions go it's a page turner and. Um, Yes, I did say that with regards to an appellate court opinion. And it's that's fundamental to their ruling. That's the whole ruling, that you don't have any injury. Um, and that the uh, – and not only that, but that the statutory damages that were awarded and the attorney's fees that were awarded are don't support standing under Spokio. So – also put this in context historically with where we've come with Spokio. Spokio is 2016. This original decision comes out in like 16. And then they, about a year later, they then kick the whole thing. So it's, and then they go to state court and they do, and then the motions to dismiss uh, get granted before they get to the, get to the appellate court. Uh, so it's a, and and let's say the lawyers involved, the Allstate brought in a heavy hitter, a very well-known litigator, uh, an appellate uh 
appellate advocate from California to try to, to at least do the appeal for them, if not uh, done other things uh, in the case for them. And so it, it's a very, very good argument. It's very well argued, but it's a uh, it is procedurally a very interesting case. Dan, do you have some other things to add on this particular case? Not really. Other, other than the panel just wasn't buying uh, the, the plaintiff's arguments in terms of, of of the defamation. Like you said, uh, at one point they were asked, you've had nine years or whatever. You've had a long time and you, you haven't uh, 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 alleged special damages. You haven't shown that these people weren't able to get work or any of these facts to support any of this stuff. And uh, Justice Hyman was especially active uh, for the As plaintiff. He often counsel. is. He often is uh, on his panels and he asks good questions. I mean, he's, he's an excellent jurist and, and uh, one of the, one of the, uh, you know, one of the, I would say one of the top appellate justices in the, in the state, just, uh, he really, he, he really, he really is. And, and he, he doesn't brook nonsense. He, he, he gets, he gets right to it. And, and, you know where uh, you kind of—he's kind of like Justice Kavanaugh in that regard. You—he you, doesn't play poker very well. He tells you right where he's coming from, and sometimes they're okay, but that doesn't happen very often. Not uh, very often. He—he he, he usually has, uh, has has got pretty set ideas as to what he's thinking about a particular case. Um, yeah. He's not doing the Justice Breyer hemming and hawing. He's—he's—he's—he's nah. he's, he's got his mind uh, not made up, but he's pretty sure of what he's thinking as he as he gets into the argument. So. With that, we'll take our break and come back with predictions sure to go wrong, some predictions that went right, or at least one prediction that went right, and then a rule of the week. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three of episode 32, and we're going to go right to our prediction, sure to go wrong, and our rule of the week. On prediction, sure to go wrong, Pat, we're now 26, 2, and 3. We added a win last week, and that was after Westwood 1 versus NCAA an Indiana appellate decision that was issued this week. Uh, the panel agreed with the NCAA that injunctive relief was not appropriate as Westwood one had an adequate remedy at law should it prevail. They were able to calculate damages and had entered a, a one-year contract for the 2021 March Madness tournament. And this, this case involved the radio contract for the NCAA March Madness tournament and the cancellation of the tournament in 2020 due to the coronavirus. Uh, Westwood One was trying to argue at the appellate level that uh, the damages, because NCAA is so big on their platform, that the NFL, that losing the NCAA, uh, that it was impossible to calculate damages. And as we discussed on uh, when we covered the case, uh, the panel was just not buying it. They they were uh, very skeptical and said, "Look, you guys uh, went to mediation. You figured out a, a way to contract and assess what the For value of this Right. And you've had a relationship for 20 years or, or whatever, 40, the relationship, years. 40 years. And so, you know, with all due respect, you guys can figure out a monetary amount in this case. Yeah, they it, the the stand the issue here was the standard of review and the high burden that the uh, that the appellant Westwood one had 
both at the trial level of proving they were entitled to injunctive relief. And we talked about the standard for that. And then the, and, and apparently my dog, he's got things to say about this. He does. Um, <laughs> he, he's got like probably more intelligent things than I've got to say. And then on appeal, you just double that with both. They've got to find that the judge, not only, not only should they have won, but the, that the judge abused his discretion and not granting the injunctive relief. And this was an extremely long shot. So we're 26, two and three, Dan, and the NCAA is one and oh. Right. Now they got. We have two more cases in the hopper, uh, an insurance coverage case before the Indiana Supreme Court, and the athletes' pay case, the NCAA versus Alston, in for the United States Supreme Court. So they've we've got a little bit of way. You know, the NCAA still has some work to do. And there's and they had another case come down recently. They didn't get oral do oral argument on that we didn't talk about. But uh, there's another one out there. So they've been they've been very busy. It's good to be NCAA's lawyers. Uh, it is. It is. They're 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 doing well. They're doing well, and they're likely to get more and more cases just because, again, this whole pay issue and other antitrust issues will, depending on what the court decides in Alston, we can see some other potential derivative Alston cases. Alston is just follow- the beginning if Alston yep. wins, right? as as the court suggested in, during the oral argument in that case. Right, right. With so that, with, let's, you know, oh, go ahead. Go, with that, let's bring us to uh, prediction sure to go wrong for this week, Trujillos versus International Paper. And let me do this. Because there's really two issues here. There's international paper, which we didn't really talk about because it wasn't nearly as much as nearly as interesting. This borrowed servant issue, and then we've got Kano. So let's split this up. Um, international paper affirmed, deny, or, or, or affirmed or, or reversed with regards to international paper. I think it's affirmed. I, I think so too, and I think there's part of this. If there's a larger issue going on here as the court, as the appellate courts work out some of this borrowed servant stuff. There is, and there's been a, there's now been a PLA granted uh, by the uh, Supreme Court in a case against Bully and Andrews, uh, which is in a construction outfit up here in Chicago. Uh, that's going to address some of address this issue. And then there was a third district case that came down last year that I wrote about in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin: Quintana versus Ferrara Candy. Uh, a candy manufacturer up here in Chicago, um, related to this, and they just left the farm entirely. Uh, so this is an issue that's alive and well in Illinois, but I think I, I think this is going to be an affirmance because the first district generally has been favorable to employers on this issue and and finding the exclusive remedy applies. And it's a and big then, issue. It's a big issue. I've got clients that have these borrowed employees and staffing agencies where a lot of the employees, you know, are are from these staffing agencies and it does it's 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 very challenging from an insurance perspective and from eoc types of claims and other things because very hard to sort that out and who's you know who knows what and how it all works and so and if you go back and you look at why we have the to relate it back to the ncaa and the alston the reason why we have the term student athlete was to avoid workers compensation look it up right that's why that's the reason why they created this whole a uh, charade of of uh, uh, of amateurism in the first instance was to avoid workers' comp. So uh, that brings us to the Kano part of tr- the Trujillo's case, and, and I think we agree that this is going to be an affirmance. I, I yeah. as we talked about in the interview, there's ways they could have done this, and one of them did not involve giving up the ghost at the beginning of the oral argument. Um, right, right. Th- th- don't do that. That's uh, a bad idea. Very, very not good idea. I also think uh, um, 
I've lost my train of thought, so never mind. <laughs> okay. I, was, uh, I, I, I had a thought on that, but, it, but I've lost it. All right. So we'll go to Rivera versus Allstate. Uh, I, I think this gets affirmed as well. I, I think that – I don't think it's all dicta to say we don't have jurisdiction in the course of finding the reason why we don't have jurisdiction is because you haven't proved damages and damages as an element of your claim. The, 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 uh, the case that all lawyers cite to repeatedly – that probably was mostly dicta. Marbury versus Madison did the same thing. Hey, at the end of the day, we don't have jurisdiction, but, uh, you know. It's only the I'll... case that gave the Supreme Court all the power that it has. Right. But, <laughs> Whether but you they... like that or not, it that's, you know, it's it's all dicta under this analysis. I don't think that's the case. No, I don't think so either. I don't think so. So that brings us to the rule of the week, Dan. Why don't you tell us about the rule of the week? Because that's apropos of, of uh, cert, or, uh, PLA grants. They also snuck in a supervisory order. So tell us about supervisory orders. So as you mentioned today, the role of the week is, is supervisory orders. And as Pat has uh, indicated, and we've talked about it, it's a power that comes from the Illinois Constitution. And the power of the supervision comes directly from the Illinois Constitution, Article 6, Section 16, the administration. I'm not going to read it all. We'll put it in the uh, notes. But it says that general administrative and supervisory authority Overall courts is vested in the Supreme Court and should be exercised by the Chief Justice in accordance with its rules. Um, and this comes up at times, and most recently it came up in the Midwest Sanitary versus Sandberg Phoenix case. The Fifth District denied a 308 petition, and then the Supreme Court ordered them to take it. And as Pat uh, mentioned to me, that puts a real spin on consideration on the PLA that will be filed. And Pat, tell us more about this rule. So. When you, uh, if you have a, a rule of something you don't like that either a trial court did or an appellate court did, the Supreme Court under the Illinois Constitution has the has ultimate supervisory authority over all court matters in the state, and, and I think we we don't talk enough about state constitutions. State constitutions are really important, and the Illinois Constitution, Article One, is the Bill of Rights. Article two is the separation of powers. It's two clauses. And it says the judicial power is in the is in the uh, judicial branch with the Supreme Court. Article three is voting rights. Wonder what was in the minds of the 1970 framer, the framers of the 1970 Illinois Constitution. And then only in Article Four do you get to the General Assembly, Article Five, the executive, and Article Six, the uh the judiciary. So that's what Dan said. Article six is where you deal with, okay, what's the power? Well, the power is supervisory and that, that power involves. So if you get your PLA denied or you get your, uh, something as trial courts doing something you don't like, you can go file a, a, for a, a, a supervisory writ with the Supreme court. Now it's an extra, it's extraordinary. It doesn't happen very often. It doesn't get granted very often. They aren't filed very often as a consequence, but it happens, and it is available. The Supreme Court can come in and tell a trial judge, tell an appellate court, go do that. So as Dan mentioned, the Midwest Sanitary versus Sandburg-Phoenix case, this was the case where the court held, the trial court held, that there you could seek punitive damages against a lawyer, and they prepared a 308 petition, and they submitted that to the Fifth District, which denied it. So then they filed a motion for supervisory order with the Supreme Court and the super and the court exercised its supervisory authority and said, you take that appeal. Now that gives you a different, it gives you a spin. 
an idea that at least some of the justices in ex exercising this extraordinary power, that some of them weren't a fan, but they, they, as they often are, or they are, is they are a court of review, usually with a full trial court record and a full appellate record. So all of the issues are well developed by the time it gets to them. So they can, they've got, they've got the full body of, of things for them to analyze when they decide on an issue like this, because they knew this is coming to them, no matter yep. what. It's, and, and it already come to them. So that really tells you something about what they're thinking. Now, does it mean that they're going to reverse the uh, trial court or, or, and, and thereby also reverse the No, but it does give an idea that at least some of them wanted to have more information about this before, because they know it's coming to them eventually. So uh, this is a very, it's, it's a power that is very important for the Illinois Supreme Court. It's vested directly from the state constitution. It goes right to the structure of the constitution itself and is, is something not to be forgotten, though rarely actually exercised, but it's something not to be forgotten as ultimately the Supreme Court runs the show for the judiciary in Illinois. Um, and with that, Dan, I think we're done for our very strange episode in terms of its format, but uh, a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. So with that, uh, we'll wish everyone a, a good Memorial Day weekend. There may be a small little blooper episode of some interesting things that happened in oral argument this week in the Seventh Circuit in the First District uh, that I may release a solo episode over the weekend. So with that, uh, everybody have a great weekend. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.